Everybody out this morning, I know there's all kinds of things that uh, want to get in the way of uh, us coming, but uh, it's just always good to see all your faces and to fellowship with you and to meet together with the Lord. All right, here we are. Well, this morning we're continuing on in our journey through the book of Acts following the Apostle Paul along his third missionary journey, where he stops for an extended stay in the city of Ephesus. So turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 19, and we're going to read there starting in verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road to the interior and arrived at Ephesus, and Ephesus was a city on the western coast of Asia Minor, located at the mouth of the Little Meander River between the Caressus mountain range and the Aegean Sea. It was founded in the 11th century BC and served as a gateway to the vast resources of Asia. Ephesus relied on two important assets for its wealth and vitality. The first was its position as a center of trade, linking the Greco-Roman world with the rich lands of Asia Minor. But because of excessive lumbering, charcoal burning, and overgrazing of the land, the topsoil slipped into the streams, the streams turned into its marshes, and stormwaters raced to the sea laden with silt that choked off the river's mouth. Today, the mouth of this river is so choked by silt that the ancient harbor works of Ephesus back in Paul's time sit behind a swamp more than seven miles from the sea. In Paul's day, as we read about Paul's missionary work here, The zenith of Ephesus' commercial power had long since passed. Deepening economic decline had cast a shadow over the city. The second factor life in Ephesus depended on was the worship of Artemis, uh, her Latin name Diana, the multi-breasted goddess of fertility whose temple was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. With the decline of its commerce, the prosperity in Ephesus became more and more dependent on the tourist and pilgrim trade associated with the temple and the cult of Artemis. The worship of Artemis was all-pervasive in the culture of Ephesus. A goddess who was believed to have control of the reproductive powers of men and women, and the worship of her was often oriented around sex. Sacrifices were offered to her, and ceremonial prostitution was practiced. Ephesus became a center for the occult, witchcraft, demonism, the black arts, and astrology, Magicians, witches, warlocks, they were everywhere. This was a very dark place. A large part of the city's population made their livelihood creating wooden idols and silver shrines to Artemis. Artifacts of cultural interests, the business of exorcism and occult practices, prostitution, and tourist activities surrounding the temple became the way that the people made their livelihood. It's important to remember this about Ephesus, for we are about to see the clash of two kingdoms through the ministry of Paul. You're going to see the power that the gospel has to transform the people of the city. In Romans 1.16, Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. A power that is true and transforming and freeing today as it was then. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we come to you this morning just so glad that you meet us here. And we know that so many people walk in here today with 
with burdens they're carrying and, and is weighing heavy on their hearts and minds. And, and we just pray, Lord, that you'd help them to cast those aside just for a few minutes this morning, to spend time with you, allowing you to speak into their hearts and minds, knowing that you're alive, knowing that you care about every single thing they're going through. And ultimately, Lord, that by hearing from you, we could apply something from your word into our lives that would transform us and, and set us free and far more, fall more in love with you than we ever have before. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's continue on in Acts 19 and let's read verses 2 through 7. There Paul found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, What baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So Paul arrives in Ephesus, and he goes about his ministry like he did in most of the cities, where he almost immediately goes to the synagogue. The question Paul asked these 12 men is, Do you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And this suggested two things to me. First, Paul assumed they were Christians since they professed to believe, but also that Paul held that saving faith and reception of the Holy Spirit always occurred together. The scriptures validate this belief. In John 3, 3 through 5, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. He must be born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You must be born again. And then Romans 8 9, Paul writes, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. These two assumptions caused Paul some difficulty when he met these 12 men, for something in their life must have indicated to Paul that they weren't true believers in Christ. When they answered they had not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit, Paul knew that there was something amiss in their understanding of the gospel. So he asked a second probing question, then what baptism did you receive? The response was the baptism of John, referring to John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Christ, the one who prepared the way for Jesus, the coming Messiah, who taught a message of repentance that people should turn from their sins so that we'd be ready for his coming. Through John's teaching, they should have understood that Jesus was the promised Messiah, and through faith in him, one could be saved from their sin and granted eternal life. But apparently, they stopped short of faith in Jesus, making John and his teaching their focus, short of belief and acceptance in Christ as Savior. This is very important for us to see as a part of the ministry of the gospel that we have. To not just take for granted that when someone says they believe or that they're a Christian or that you know that they're going to church every week, uh, that they must be saved. Our job is not to judge a person's salvation, but our job is to discern where people are really at with Jesus so that we can help them according to their need. I think often we feel relieved when a friend or family member says, oh yeah, I believe, or I'm a Christian. It's kind of like, whew, he's a Christian. I don't have to worry about sharing the gospel with him. I, I think he's a Christian. It makes us feel we're off the hook. Good, she's a Christian. I don't have to worry about bringing up uncomfortable stuff that might cause offense or conflict. So we hope against hope so that we don't have to step outside of our comfort zone. 
I had a recent conversation with a longtime friend who is a Christian, and he uh, was divorced years ago from his first marriage and has recently, in the last few years, remarried. And he sees his Christianity much in light of politics. He's very motivated to speak about politics, to pass on political conservative materials through Facebook. And he was telling me that his new wife has very liberal political views, and so often they argue, fight, and debate over their political views, at times getting under each other's skin. And he was telling me, sometimes I think she's a Christian, sometimes I don't. If I had to say, she's probably not. And he's telling me this about his wife. It kind of sounds like he's making his assessment on where she stands with Christ according to her liberal political views. If she was truly a Christian, she would have the same conservative political views as I do. But I think this is both sad and misguided. Hear me on this. Politics is important. And as Christians, we should vote. And we should understand the issues and we should understand the people that are Uh, we're voting for, we should understand their character, the issues they have, the platform they have, the policies they stand for. But salvation has absolutely nothing to do with a person's political views. It has everything to do with whether or not they believe and have embraced the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ coming to this planet, God in the flesh, to make payment for the sins of the world, the only one who has ever lived a perfect sinless life, who taught and revealed the love of God for you and I who suffered, died on a cross, was buried, and who rose from the dead on the third day, thus proving he was God and had victory over sin and death. And to every person who believes he is God, who believes he died for their sin, who acknowledges they are a sinner and asks for his forgiveness, inviting him into their life as Savior and surrendering their life to him as Lord, he grants them eternal life. And this is the good news of the gospel. And has nothing to do with politics. This is the message of the gospel. This is the importance of the gospel. This is the power of the gospel. And through the Holy Spirit, it has the power to save, set free, and transform human lives to change human destinies for all eternity. Can political leaders do that? Are government institutions? Can someone's political views do that? If you are more concerned today about politics, if you talk and debate and argue more about political issues and are more passionate about politics than you are about the gospel of Jesus Christ, I believe you've lost your way. Paul discerned that these 12 men did not know Christ and he cared enough not to take their spiritual condition for granted. So he asked probing questions to be sure he understood what they really believed. This is part of our gospel mission as well. To care enough and love the people who surround our lives enough to ask, can you tell me about your faith background or your faith journey? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe is the reason for his death on a cross? If you were to die today as you stood before God, how would you answer this question? Why should I allow you into my perfect heavenly kingdom? Do you mind if I share my faith story with you? Paul asked these 12 men a couple of probing questions, found out where they really were in relationship to Jesus, shared the good news of the gospel, led them to Christ, baptized them, and as we will see, discipled them and raised them up as men who would share in his gospel mission. And you have been called to that very same mission. Let's continue on in our text. Let's read verses 8 through 10. 
Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took his disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So Paul goes to the synagogue like he most always did when he arrived in a city. And Luke writes that for three months he argued persuasively about the kingdom of God there. So what's the kingdom of God? Well, it's the rule of Christ on earth that was ushered in in his incarnation. His messianic kingdom that would break through into this world. Realized in human hearts through the gospel. It's Christ's rule and reign in the individual hearts of men, women, and children. A rule and reign that will be fully realized at his second coming, where he will establish his kingdom for all eternity. The current subject of his kingdom on earth are the church, born-again believers in him. Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, he, he speaks of the heart disposition of those in the kingdom, and he says they're poor in spirit. They, they realize their need for Christ. They're those who mourn over their sin. They have a heart of humility and dependence and meekness. They're those who are merciful and pure in heart. They're peacemakers and whose faith endures under persecution. In Matthew 6, Jesus tells us to pray to the Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then in verse 33 of that same chapter, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, the kingdom is evidenced in the person who submits to the rule and reign of Christ in their life, allowing him to sit as Lord on the throne of their heart. The kingdom of Christ is manifested in this world through those who believe in and follow him. For three months, Paul's preaching about the kingdom in the synagogue, and when opposition rears its ugly head, as it almost always does in Paul's ministry, some became obstinate and refused to believe his message and began to malign the way. Paul leaves, and instead of giving up and packing it in, he just finds another place to preach and teach the truth about Jesus. For two more years, Paul ministered at the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and that was probably the hall of a local philosopher whose name in the Greek actually means tyrant. It's hard to believe that any parent would actually name their child with a name that meant tyrant. Even though some of us, as we experience the terrible twos or threes, may have wanted to change the name of our child. <laughs> Preach it, brother. But it's more likely that he received this name as a nickname given to him by his students. As former students, our current students, we can probably all relate to having at least one teacher who we wish we could rename Tyrant. I know that you're probably thinking of that teacher right now. Hopefully it's not your homeschool mom. <laughs> hey, we homeschool too, so, you know. But, you know, I want to pause just for a moment to look more closely at Paul's schedule. And I want to ask the question as we look at his schedule, I want you to answer this question. How do I leverage my schedule to maximize the kingdom mission Christ has given me? Every one of us could claim to have busy lives. But the question must be asked, what are you busy doing? In my studies of this chapter, this is what some commentators believe Paul's daily schedule looked like. From dawn to 11 a.m., it was tent making. That was, as we've talked about before, that was the way he earned his living. 
And then from 11 to 4, this was the heat of the day, and in the culture of Paul's time, this would be when the people would take a break from work, and it was kind of like a siesta. They would have lunch and rest from work and maybe take a nap. So Paul used this time, this kind of free time, to try to draw people into the hall to preach and teach about Jesus. Then from 4 to 6 p.m., he was back to his tent-making industry, and then from 6 through the evening hours, he went house to house doing discipleship with newly saved believers. One commentator suggested that this reflected 1,560 hours of instruction that his disciples received over that time. That's more than a three-year Masters of Divinity. This was Paul's pastor and missionary leadership program, and how awesome would it have been to sit under him and be discipled? With this in mind, it's no surprise what Luke wrote in verse 10. He says, This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. You see, Paul was about the business of discipling, raising up, and sending out men who shared in his gospel mission, and that is part of the vision of Emmanuel Fellowship Church as well. God doesn't expect you or I to be Paul. But what he does expect is for you and I to be faithful and diligent in the opportunities that he's given us. Sometimes we think in order to do this, we need to recreate the wheel or we need to start being up at church three nights a week. God's not asking that of you. He's asking you to see your current life as you live it every day as opportunities to live for the gospel. How have you been leveraging your work, your workplace, your life responsibilities, relationships, and discretionary time in order to maximize your impact for the kingdom? Last week, Sam challenged us to see this new year as an opportunity to go deeper with Christ, to be filled with more of Christ, and to see the natural overflow in our lives be the love of Christ pouring out to others. Listen, my calling is as a pastor. My life is so much about the church, and yet I also have a life outside of my job as you do, with family and extended family and in my neighborhood. It's so easy to come home and and open the drawbridge to my castle to drive over the moat to enter in and close the drawbridge behind me. As I've done more often than not. Lisa and I have lived in our neighborhood since 2002 and we've prayed for our neighbors for years and it's really only been over the last two years that we have really created deeper friendships with people in our neighborhood. Our next door neighbor named Sharon came to us with a cancer diagnosis about six months ago. And so we asked if we could pray for her and if she wanted us to put us on the church prayer chain. And she said, oh, that would be great. And so recently she came and said, hey, I'm cancer free. Thank you so much for putting me on the church prayer chain. Her husband and her and her son were just deeply touched and moved by that. Then since we've had our little cute dog, Rosie, in the last year and a half, and since we don't have a fenced yard, we have to take her for walks through the neighborhood, and she has been our connection to every dog-loving person in the neighborhood. It's amazing what a dog can do. If you have trouble talking with people about the Lord, just get a dog. You can't walk your cat around the neighborhood, so it's got to be a dog. Maybe you get a pig. But early in December, I ran into one of our new neighbors who was a young married man across the street named Jake, and he was walking his baby, um, who is now one and a half, in the stroller as I walked Rosie, and we stopped, and 
the conversation naturally just went to talking about spiritual things. So when his wife was, had delivered their second child here recently, we brought over a meal. And when they brought back our dishes, Jake said that he and some of the neighbors were talking and were wondering if I'd be willing to leave a neighborhood Bible study. That starts February 8th on Tuesdays. So we ask that you please be in prayer for us. But you know, it was God who created this divine appointment with Jake as I walked my dog one day. It's God who answered our years of prayers despite the fact that we have failed much more often than not than we've succeeded in being good neighbors. Quickly, here's the second thing I'm certain God is asking me to do in 2022. And I shared both of these things with in our staff meeting with the pastors on Wednesday. And the reason why I shared it with them is because, you know, sometimes you feel like God has really spoken to you about something and you kind of keep it to yourself and then all of a sudden a few weeks or months go by and you've just forgotten about it and you let it go. But when you tell somebody, then you're kind of accountable. So these guys are holding me accountable and now you guys get to hold me accountable. But February 12th, of next month will be my 40th spiritual birthday since I trusted Christ as my Savior. And I felt the Holy Spirit really laying on my heart to send an email out to all my extended family and friends sharing my story and life journey with Christ. But I was talking with Greg Blackford last Sunday. He said, what a great idea. That's awesome. Have you thought about doing a video instead? So I went to the staff meeting and said, hey, um, this is what I'm thinking. And and Greg said, how about a video? And Chris said, uh, hey, I'd love to put together a great video for you. So Chris is going to work with me to put a video of my testimony and my life journey with, with Christ. And on February 12th, on that 40th birthday, I'm going to send it out to hundreds of my family and friends across the country, um, sharing Christ with them. And so I ask that you pray for that as well. And if you, if it ends up going to you and you want to send it out to your family and friends, great. But what about if instead you sent out your own email? Or, you know, I bet you Chris would be happy if we lined up and say, hey, make me a video too. <laughs> I don't think he's here right now, so. But what about if you did something like that yourself? You know, in January of 2021, God was challenging me with two words. And those words just kept resonating in, in my mind and my heart over and over again. And so I made this little, I'm not much of an artist, but I, made, I wrote those words on this sheet of paper and I put it in my, on my bookshelf in my office upstairs so every time I walked in, I could see it. And, and the words are, are, are kingdom risk. And just over and over, over this last year, I feel like the Lord has been speaking to me about kingdom risk. And what's one of the reasons why he's speaking to me about that? It's because I'm a Christian who likes to stay in my comfort zone. And he was beckoning me to come out on a limb on the edge of the cliff with him by faith and say, hey, start putting some things on the line for the kingdom and for the gospel. And the Lord is answering those prayers. Let's continue on and read in Acts 19, 11 and 12. God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hand so that even faith face cloths and aprons that had touched his skin were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. So Luke writes that God was doing extraordinary miracles through Paul and that Greek word miracle is dynamis and it means power, it means miraculous power. And he, he describes them as extraordinary which means they were unusual outside the norm. 
A miracle, by definition, is God intervening in the natural order of things to interject his power and will upon a situation to change it, to glorify himself, to reveal to those witnessing it that he's at work, and ultimately to set the table for people to receive the gospel. And we believe that God is still a God of miracles today. Through Paul laying his hands on and praying for the sick, and through people taking his work sweat cloth and work apron to sick people as they touch them, They were healed and some delivered from evil spirits. Luke was certain to give God the credit for this and not Paul. This was God's power at work. And God will use whatever means that he deems necessary to have the greatest impact in his world. This parallels Jesus' ministry when a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, remember, was in the crowd and touched his cloak and she was healed. This is really no surprise that God would encounter such a culture steeped in mysticism and the occult, a place where there was demonic stronghold, power for power. To not only show that his power is real and at work, but overrides any other known power. As we will see in the conclusion of our text, there were two kingdoms clashing, two kingdoms in conflict, and one kingdom that prevailed. It's the same conflict that continues to rage on today. Let's read on, verses 13 through 16. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Among practitioners of magic in ancient times, the Jews enjoyed a high respect and reputation for they were believed to have exceptional effective spells at their command. The sons of Sceva, promoting themselves as traveling exorcists, were more than likely earning their living doing that. They appeared to be fascinated by Paul's power, influence, and apparent success over the demonic and recognized, they thought, was the secret was using Jesus' name. But theirs was a fraudulent activity since they were not believers in Christ and used the name of Jesus as if it was a magic formula or incantation. The implication is that the name of Jesus only had the power to heal and deliver when used by those who genuinely called Jesus Lord. The demons knew that these men did not have the appropriate moral or spiritual integrity with which to engage evil powers. So through the man who is uh, possessed, they say, we know Jesus. We have heard about Paul, but who are you? In other words, who in the heck do you think you are? Let me show you who you're really messing with. And not only were they unsuccessful, but the man who was demon-possessed beat and bloodied all seven of them, stripping them of their clothes, and may I say of their dignity, as they were running around the streets of Ephesus, bleeding and naked. Let's finish up our text here. Let's read the final three verses. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. 
So upon hearing of the amazing power of God at work through Paul and also the news that these Jewish exorcists proved to be impotent against the same evil powers, those who had already believed in Christ, they were new believers, began to openly confess and disclose in public that they still were involved with sorcery and had maintained their scrolls of the dark arts probably in such a way as to be an insurance policy that, hey, if I ever need to tap into that power, I still got it at my access. But they confessed this as sin, renounced and repudiated what they once treasured and held as an insurance policy to help them in time of need. These scrolls were filled with secret magic incantations and spells, but believed that once revealed in the public that they were no longer effective, that they lost their power. The power was to be found in their secrecy, and it's kind of the, it is the same thing with our sin. The devil wants to convince us, and we don't know it's the devil, to hide our sin and, the, and to keep it to ourselves. But the power to overcome that very sin comes in not being a secret any longer and you letting it, people know who are close to you what's going on in your life. The estimated value of what was burned, 50,000 drachma, equaled about 50,000 pieces of silver are equal to a single worker's daily wage for 137 years without a day off. In other words, from their value, you could have paid 137 workers for a year. It'd be like every member of Emmanuel Fellowship piling up their checks for an entire year and having a bonfire. That's what their value was worth. Now the name of Jesus was held in reverence, awe, and respect. They burned their scrolls as an indication of repentance and now recognizing that genuine discipleship for Christ involved letting go was formally treasured in order to honor Christ and enjoy the true blessings of Christ's kingdom. The idolatry of Ephesus ended up in an ash heap while the word of God advanced powerfully through the entire region. What we try to dismiss and what we try to forget and what we try to convince ourselves that is not true is the fact that Christian discipleship is always costly. For it means choosing to let go of the things and the habits and the activities and sometimes the people that we once treasured more than we did Jesus. Things and people that once occupied the thrones of our heart. Things and people we look to to satisfy the needs and the longings and desires that Jesus alone can satisfy. What we've witnessed in our text today is two kingdoms in conflict. The daily invisible spiritual war has been made visible. Forces of good versus forces of evil. God versus Satan. The angelic versus the demonic. This is a war where there never is a peace treaty. There's never a demilitarized zone. There's never a detente. The moment you become a Christian, you are drafted as a soldier in this war and you've been given powerful weapons to ensure victory. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4, Paul says, Though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. In 1 John 4, 4, John writes, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Holy Spirit who indwells you is more powerful than the demonic forces of evil. Therefore, not only can the demonic not inhabit a Christian, but Christian, you have the power to defeat the evil forces at war against you. Now that we know the extent 
of the demonic power and the occult that had hold of the city of Ephesus, it's no wonder that he, he, he completes his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 6 by the most uh, accurate depiction and, and understanding of our spiritual warfare that's going on in the spiritual armor we're to wear in Ephesians chapter 6. It brings greater understanding why that's there. Your weapons are the word of God in prayer for it's truth that dispels lies and sets people free. It's light that dispels darkness. It's the power of prayer that moves the heart of your king to work in your world. You have an indwelling general who's more powerful than the opposing general and you have fellow soldiers who are in the trenches with you who have your back. This is the war you are to be engaged in. This is the mission of advancing the gospel that in essence you signed up for the moment you were saved. It's the mission of Emmanuel Fellowship Church that God has called each of us to be engaged in together. And what we've witnessed through the first 19 chapters of Acts is the power of the gospel to defeat evil and transform lives, to set people free, moving people out of the kingdom of darkness into God's marvelous kingdom of light. And this is why we're here. I want to close this message with something that Jesus said to Peter. And Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, he says, on this rock, on your profession of faith, on the truth of this gospel message, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And if you realize, gates are something that protects a kingdom. They're not offensive, they're defensive. And so our world is basically of the domain in the world of the God of this age, the devil. And as Christians, we are going into his territory to set people free, to set the captives free, to, to have them understand and know and receive Christ as Savior. Chris, if you want to come on up. I feel like we have two pieces of business to do with the Lord this morning in our personal time of reflection and prayer. And, and we do this every week. And this is your opportunity in the midst of a group to just have some personal time, just you and the Lord. And I encourage you not to waste it. Because every week, I believe, I come here to hear from God through whoever's preaching. And I want to know, you know, the beauty of our God in a very personal way. And so what you're getting out of this and how God's speaking to you is different from how he's speaking to you and how he's speaking to you. But the thing about it is, is that now's the time to actually deal with that, to do some business with him on how he has spoken to you through the message today. The first piece of business is to confess and renounce whatever scrolls that you have in your life. What idols have you given allegiance to and placed as more important in your heart than Jesus? What is there in your life that you've given more value to than Jesus? It's time to repent of that and turn from those and confess that to the Lord. The second piece of business is to ask God to show you how he wants you to risk in order to advance the gospel in 2022. 
How is he calling you out of your comfort zone this year to leverage your work, your family, your relationships in your neighborhood, your discretionary time to maximize your efforts for your mission to advance the good news of Jesus Christ? Don't blow this time off. Let's spend some time with the Lord and do some business with him. And after that, we're not going to close like we normally do um, with communion, but we're going to have some prayer ministry time. So after Chris's song, I'm going to come back up and we'll start that prayer ministry time.